0: Part Three Two days before the end of your
1: term, we sat upstairs, eating breakfast together. You were in the same uniform you had been in the previous morning, your hair in an identical style. Yet, as you sat there eating your limp cornflakes, I couldn't help but notice that you looked transformed. Dad, what's up?
0: You're creeping me out.
1: I couldn't speak. I couldn't tell you that I was made numb, made petrified by your sudden beauty. Of course, you had always been a pleasure on the eye. I had never been able to ignore the way strangers had shied away from Reuben's frowning, birthmarked face to focus on yours, nor had I been surprised when Mrs. Weeks had wanted to paint your portrait. Yet rather than a source of pride, That morning, I must confess, your face triggered a startling fear. Someone had overfilled the cup. You were never meant to look quite this way. Oh, certainly your mother had been a gorgeous creature in her youth. Yet her beauty was an acquired taste, like beau porcelain or Art Nouveau. When I first met her, she required a certain... Byronic imagination to render her wholly perfect, those slight asymmetric flaws were part of her charm. What troubled me was the obvious nature of your loveliness. In that tiny last skip from girlhood to womanhood, in that most subtle overnight alteration, you had bloomed from a limber elf-child into a Juliet, a Dido, a Venus. My fear was about the impact this beauty would have on the male population. After all, boys don't acquire such taste. It is there from the start, formed in the bliss of their womb-warmed dreams, their sole incentive for being born. I knew that this spelt trouble. I knew that you would soon be inspiring the wrong kind of attention. Boys would buzz around you. And I feared you would enjoy that buzz, welcome it, walk like a novice beekeeper straight into it, unaware of any potential sting. Dad, stop staring, it's impolite.
0: Tell me, how do you respond?
1: My daughter, my darling Petal, you must never leave the house again. No. Your eyes, I said, have you done something to them? Are you wearing makeup? a bit for school you can wear makeup to school now dad it's not 1932 it's not a nunnery green eyeshadow it's 2 days before the holidays nobody cares i knew i shouldn't have been overly concerned after all there were only girls at school but what about afterwards what about your walk home You must surely have crossed paths with the lowly specimens from St. John's. In my mind, I saw you laughing. In my mind, I saw an anonymous boy's anonymous arm around your shoulder, steering you down a leafy, houseless path. And then the vision became less anonymous. It became
0: him. It became that boy, Denny.
1: I will drive you to school, and I'll pick you up. Dad, why? You haven't driven me to school since I was twelve. It's only up the road. I worry about you, that's all. Please, let me drive you. And let me pick you up. Cynthia will be here to look after the shop. Please. I squeezed so much into that final please that a flash of your old self returned. You probably realised I was thinking about Reuben, that I was feeling guilty for letting him slip beyond my radar so many times. You shrugged. Do whatever you
0: like. In the car,
1: I told you about Rome. Rome? You said as though it were the name of a former friend who had let you down. I booked it last week. Why didn't you tell me? I could feel the blast of your stare, even as I kept my eyes on the road. Well, I thought it would be a rather jolly surprise. I'm meant to be going out with Imogen next Monday. Going out? I mean, going around to see her. Well, can't it wait? I'm sure she'll still be visible the following Monday. When do we come back? On the 30th, so the world won't end. And anyway, you always told me you wanted to go to Rome. You've wanted to sit on the Spanish step since you were ten, since Roman holiday. Or have you changed? You scowled. What does that mean? It means, have
0: you changed? Since I was ten? No, since...
1: Never mind. Two boys crossed at the lights, nudging and staring, making wild simian noises at the sight of you, You scrunched your nose in disgust, but I detected the smile. Embarrassed. Flattered. You still want to see the Sistine Chapel, don't you? You shrugged. I suppose. And Petal, I couldn't help noticing. Why have you taken the poster down from your room? What poster? The Pablo Casals poster. I thought he was your hero.
0: Another shrug. It gives me the creeps. What? At night. I feel like he's looking at me. I feel his eyes
1: staring at me. It felt like blasphemy. Those harmless eyes of that former ambassador for peace. Those eyes that had to be closed every time he played to a public audience. My anger was tempered by a guilty memory of me standing in your doorway, watching you sleep. Well, I don't see why you couldn't have put it on the opposite wall, I said.
0: What's the big deal?
1: Your voice was fading now, the anger at a dull pitch, as though a part of you was already beyond the school gates, inside the day you had to live. There's no big deal. Anyway, I think Rome will be the perfect tonic for both of
0: us. Don't you? You never answered.
1: I pulled up by a lamp post. You stepped out of the car, and I fought to let you go, for you to leave that sanctuary and get sucked in, like a weak molecule, towards that swarm of girls making their way to the school entrance.
0: Bye, Briony. Be careful.
1: And then I stayed there a second longer, gripping the steering wheel as though it was the last solid thing in the world, and found the courage needed to ignore the black flies and Reuben's whisper in my ear.
0: Look, Dad, I'm getting stronger. And drive home. Every life,
1: as with every story, has its various turning points. Often they are clearly marked as such. The symptoms of dizzy nausea that signify first love, a wedding, a graduation, a sudden windfall, the death of those we need so much we take them for granted. At other times the turning point is less clear. Something shifts, and we may sense it shifting, but the cause is as invisible to us as a swerve in the wind. Do you remember how hot Rome was? Do you remember that argument we had in the queue to get into St. Peter's? that Vatican policewoman had handed you a paper cape so God wouldn't take offence at your naked shoulders. You'd accepted it with a smile, of course, as you hadn't changed so much as to be impolite to strangers. But the moment she was gone, you said in a quietly forceful tone, I'm not wearing it. I don't think you have a choice. A year or even three months before, and that would have been enough. You would have put the cape on and smiled at how silly you looked and forgotten all about it once you were inside the basilica. We would have wandered around with pilgrims and other tourists, some caped like yourself, and marveled together at Michelangelo's dome and all the other Renaissance treasures contained inside. But no, you were adamant. I'm not wearing it, you kept saying. I'm not wearing a lime green cape. I'll look like a tent. Never in your fourteen years on the planet had I seen such a look of resolution on your face. Bryony, I said, don't be ridiculous. No one's going to care what you look like. I'm not Catholic, you said. I drew attention to a Japanese woman in front in the queue, putting her cape on without complaint. I doubt she's Catholic. Now come on, don't be childish. Don't be childish. Ironic, of course, if you had been six or seven, then you would have wanted to wear the thing. If you had been eight or ten or even twelve, then none of God's police officers would have found your bare shoulders guilty of any offence. I can see your face, too childish and too grown up all at once, still saying it like a mantra mumbled through your lips. I'm not wearing it,
0: I'm not wearing it.
1: More people than would have ever looked if you'd have worn the cape. Among the gazers were two American boys, who I surmised were about three years older than you. They had no parents with them, and I suppose you had noticed them too. Maybe this was why you didn't want to wear the cape. They were laughing anyway, and their laughter flushed your cheeks. I turned and stared at them for your sake, but they didn't notice me. They just carried on in hysterics, their long, clumsy limbs falling on and around each other like reincarnated puppies. One last time, your voice in a whisper,
0: Please, Dad, don't make me wear the cape.
1: I turned back to your face, half in my shadow, and in a moment of weakness, I decided not to argue. I can wait for you there on the step you said, answering my unvoiced question. I think this was the moment I told you about Florence Nightingale's experience of St. Peter's. Of course, when you were younger, the Lady of the Lamp had been one of your heroines, and you had even turned your room into a Crimean battlefield, dressing the wounds of Angelica and all your other dolls. But when I told you that no event in Florence's life had ever matched her first visit to St. Peter's. You were unmoved, and by this point we were close to the entrance.
0: I'll be over there, you said, handing me the cape.
1: Before I knew it, you were walking off, assuming it had been agreed. By this point I was being motioned through a metal detector by a surly and armed member of God's Constabulary. I suppose I could have still followed you and made even more of a scene, but I somehow managed to assure myself you would be all right. I think I imagined that you would sit there and brood about how foolish you had been to neglect such a chance of enriching your mind. I thought of it as a kind of lesson, something that would highlight the mistake in your behaviour and correct it. So I went inside, told myself you would be all right, and tried to feel the splendid glory of the place. I remembered the last time I was there, with your mother. Then we had been moved with a mutual emotion that seemed as overwhelming as the architectural proportions themselves. That almost paradoxical feeling of diminished human scale, paired with a sudden swelling of the spiritual self, had been like nothing we had known on this earth. We had marveled at the dome, and then climbed up to the lantern to see Rome as God might see it, A beige bowl of intersecting histories rendered so beautifully coherent your mother had tears in her eyes. This time, though, I stayed at ground level and felt the empty terror of the place. I just shuffled along with the other tourists and paused for a short while in front of Michelangelo's Pietà, staring at the sculpture through a sheet of bulletproof glass. It still had an impact, though. Indeed, the glass added another layer to the narrative. It seemed to suggest the distance between the dying Christ and the modern world, a distance brought about by the desire to protect. An equivalent desire was there in the face of the Virgin Mary, sitting strong and father-like, with the feeble-bodied child across her lap. I wished you had been there by my side to see it, the foundation of a religious faith expressed as a parent's tragedy. A parent whose son had gone away from her, out into a world that killed him. And then, too late, he was returned to the safety of the parent's
0: lap. A safety that meant nothing now.
1: I stayed there for a short while, as tears glazed my eyes. Tourists stood all around with star-struck faces, ready to take off another sight before moving on. Of course, none of them displayed any understanding of what Michelangelo was trying to say. They just made the same pleasant mumbles as they had when they stood in the Sistine Chapel, casting their eyes down from the ceiling through the last judgment and an underworld that stopped above their heads. Michelangelo's message to me, standing in front of the Pietà, was clear. Agony awaits if you let your child out into a world of lost souls. You must protect her, and you must never let her go. I walked away without seeing anything else. No chapel, no altar, no memorial or papal tomb could steer me from my course. I went outside and took a moment to find you, For a second I thought you had gone. There were too many people to make sense of the scene, but then my eyes found the column and the step, and you sitting exactly where you had said. I rushed over and didn't notice the two American boys until the last moment. I can see that appalled look on your face as I approached. A shame so intense it spilled into hatred.
0: "'Briony, shall we go?' See you later. See you later,
1: I asked, as we walked past the Egyptian obelisk towards the Via della Conciliazione. You shrugged and said nothing. A figure of speech, I told myself, as I glared again at your bare shoulders. Nothing to sweat about. And yet, in that delirious July heat, it was impossible not to sweat. Right, I said. The forum's the next on the list. I don't think you'll require a cape for that. I fell from the heavens through a night-blue sky, dropping fast as my body gained form and mass. It felt like an eternity, waiting for the flat earth to come into view. A dark carcass of land, bleeding moonlit lakes and oceans. I was heading straight towards the water, but landed in my bed, feeling worse than ever. Knowing something was wrong, I got up and left the hotel room to go and knock on your door. There was no answer, so I tried again. Nothing. Try to put yourself in my shoes, although, to be precise, I was barefoot, as I stood out in that hallway. Briony? I said your name softly at first.
0: Briony, it's me. The silence scared me,
1: so I kept knocking it away. Voices from other rooms told me in numerous European languages to shut the whatever up. I stopped knocking, went downstairs, and explained to the old man behind the desk that something could be the matter. He blew a long sigh, as though I were a regret he had just remembered, but eventually he gave me the key. When I got back upstairs and opened your door, I sank at the sight of your empty bed. I scanned the room and sent your name into every corner. There was nothing but clothes and magazines and all those other empty
0: parts of you. For your tenth
1: birthday, I had bought you a selection of films. Whistle Down the Wind, The Railway Children, Meet Me in St. Louis— and your mother's favourite, Roman Holiday. It became your favourite, too, and I saw no problem with that at the time. Suitable for all was the advice of the British Board of Film Classification. Now, though, I hold Audrey Hepburn at least partially responsible for your antics in the Eternal City. A young princess escaping her responsibilities by heading off into the Roman night to find love and freedom and Gregory Peck. The message of that film clearly infected your vulnerable mind. Why else would you leave your hotel room in that same city to search for whatever adventure you thought was out there? I walked those ancient streets without direction, for how could I know which direction to take? You could have gone anywhere. I remember heading down the Via Condotti, where mannequins in designer dresses stared out from dark windows. A girl about your height turned the corner, and I called your name. She was coming towards me, a walking silhouette, but didn't answer. My heart died as I realized it wasn't you, but a grubby-faced street urchin carrying a baby. Not even the baby was real. A plastic doll, which she threatened to throw towards me. She hissed at the same time, and then said something in a language I'm sure wasn't Italian. Money, she clarified, realising I couldn't understand. Mani I kept on going, at a quickening pace, while the ragged, gypsy girl stood in the street, hissing curses, snake words, to poison my luck. I alternated between a walk and a jog as I trod those streets, feeling a rush of hope at the sight of every moving shadow, at the sound of every new footstep, only to plunge into deeper despair when you were not the source. This went on for hours, this jogging after every new hope, asking drunks and homeless emperors and men stocking up newspaper kiosks if they had seen you. Of course, it was all futile. Really, I should have returned to the hotel and waited for you in the foyer. Light came, and the city slipped slowly into its daytime colors, the jaundiced yellows of the old and dying. I had to head back to the hotel. I knew that. But I also knew that if you weren't there, I would fall into a nightmare beyond all imagining. "'Briony!' I called down every deserted street. "'What despair your name contained when it was unanswered!' What if you had been kidnapped? I know this sounds ridiculous to you now, and maybe even to me, but I did not know where you were. There was no note in your room to explain where you had gone, and in the absence of explanation, the mind torments itself with all manner of horrendous things. I walked back slowly, as time and hope were equal partners in this. Through the Piazza di Spagna, passing the deserted Spanish steps, and the house where Keats wasted away. As I walked by the fountain, I sensed his ghost, alone and palely loitering at the window, trapped for eternity in the city he thought would heal him. But not even Keats, that great interpreter of the human soul, could offer me any clue or comfort. I returned to the hotel, and asked the man behind the reception desk if he had seen you. I am sorry, sir, but I am only just beginning, he said, as oblivious to my pain as to the strange poetry of his words. He was a younger man, a less obvious misanthrope, but such was my delirium that I had thought it was the same one as before. I was, by this point, quite dizzy with fear, and again my mind was beginning to fuzz and tingle, I must have muttered some kind of thanks, and then climbed the stairs up to the third floor, as an ashy darkness tinged away at the periphery of my vision. If you were there, in your room, I was going to hug you and kiss your forehead and stroke your hair. I was going to tell you I love you, and you were going to tell me I'm sorry I didn't mean to worry you, and I wasn't even going to think about telling you off. The relief was going to be so much, so perfect and so complete, that it would be impossible to scold you. It is peculiar, isn't it? The way our minds bargain with fate when every future possibility still hangs in the balance. I knocked on your door as the darkness crept closer. Were you asleep? The seconds ticked by without you answering, and I felt the corridor tilt under my feet. I had to steady myself by placing a hand against the wall.
0: I knocked again. Briony, are you there? Petal, Briony?
1: This time no one told me to be quiet, although I doubt I would have been aware if they had. The rest of the world could have slipped out of space and time and I wouldn't have noticed. The only thing that mattered was concealed behind that door, 305. "'I was about to go back down to the reception desk "'and get the man to give me the key "'when I heard something. "'You, your feet padding across the carpet. Bryony? "'The door opened, and you were there, "'rubbing the dreams out of your eyes.
0: "'Had you been asleep, or were you just
1: pretending? "'Was that delay in answering a part of the act?' Were you aware that I was aware? Oh, the heavy weight of trivial
0: questions. Dad?
1: I can tell you in all honesty that I have never felt so much love for you as I did inside that moment. To see you standing there, alive and intact, was all I had wanted. And there you were, in that baggy Picasso print t-shirt, yawning like a baby, I know this must be hard for you to believe, given how things progressed, but I swear it is true. I wanted to hug you, I wanted to thank you for being
0: such a miracle. But then I said it. Where were you? And I kept saying it,
1: the question backing you into the room. Where did you go? My head was heating up, the mental bonfires raging away at my being, and the sunlit room was sliding into shade. I felt something rising within me, a violent force that weakened me, causing me to lose control.
0: Nowhere. I've been here. I've just woken up.
1: Your lies, your lies, your lies. What are you on about? You're mad. I've been here. I've been asleep. I caught it. On your breath, something corrupt beneath the toothpaste you smell of smoke and drink. Then you laughed. You shouldn't have laughed, Briony. And you said a profanity, which I will euphemistically put as go away, the word I cannot write so ugly and vile in your mouth that when I did it, when I struck your face, I wasn't really striking your face, but the word on your tongue, this alien thing that had got inside you, this new presence that wanted boys and didn't want your father. And the fuzziness cleared, along with the dark, as though the outside force that had been pressing in suddenly fled like a villain. And I know this was it. I know this was the pivotal moment when the wind swerved in our story, "'and even now I can still hear your sobs "'and see your hand on your reddening cheek. "'And I said it then, and I'll still say it now. "'I'm sorry, I'm sorry. "'I'm so, so sorry. "'But I know these words are worthless healers "'and cannot restore a single thing. "'Oh, this is useless. "'I should stop right now. "'What is the point?' I can see that look of sickened disdain on your face. If only I could put my soul into these words, if only I could make you feel precisely what I felt, then you would see the truth. I suppose I expect too much. Every writer, every artist since the first cave painters has been trying to find a way to articulate their experience and are we any closer to seeing ourselves as we truly are? No. The distance we have to travel is exactly the same as it always was. So how can I expect to do what no writer has ever managed? People say that humans are the superior species on this planet, because we have minds that are conscious of their own existence, and therefore we have the capacity to create a culture, to create an art. I look at sheep at peace on the moors and wonder exactly how much of a delusion are our arrogant souls prepared to share there may be no bovid equivalent of a michelangelo but there is no need for one they accept their existence in a way we never will they do not try to build artistic mirrors books paintings orchestral symphonies by which to capture and reflect their own nature Even if they could, they wouldn't. They have that understanding inbuilt. All these human things, all these arts, these religions, these sciences, what are they really but ways of trying to make up that difference? If we could accept like animals, then there would be no Sistine Ceiling, no Madame Bovary, no fantasy and fugue. Out of our mistakes, out of our pain, arrives everything we love in this world. All that humans create serves solely to lessen the terror of existence. The terror that Beethoven and Keats and Van Gogh and every supreme artist has ever felt. The collective terror of a humanity that still stumbles around, looking at dark and untrustworthy shadows rather than true reflections. If we found a perfect art, a perfect mirror to reflect our plight, one which helped us see ourselves from every angle, then it would mean the end of all creative endeavour. Art would have killed itself, or it would live on in the way it lives in horses and cats and sheep. The art of living and letting live that our human souls
0: have yet to learn.